0: I hope you understand this morning that the Bible that you hold in your hand, that is an exceptionally important book. It is the book of books. Every word in that book is important. Every phrase, every statement, every word, every letter, every punctuation mark, that is an important book. Psalm 138 puts into perspective the view that God has on the importance of his word. Notice what the Bible says in Psalm 138 verse number two, how important God's word is not to mankind, but to God himself. The Bible says in Psalm 138, it says, I will worship toward thy, 138 verse two, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Watch this. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Notice what the Bible says here that God himself has magnified his word above his own name. Now, this doesn't mean anything if you don't know how God treats his own name. Listen, God's name is important to him. It's so important he put it in the list of the Ten Commandments that you should not blaspheme his name. You shouldn't use God's name uselessly like you might a cuss word or some other vain word. God cares about his name. How important is God's name? God's name is so important that the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 9, the Bible says, wherefore God hath also highly exalted him, that him there is Jesus Christ. And then it says, given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's his name, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Listen, please hear me. Every unsaved man or woman this morning, you will one day say the words, you will say the words, Jesus Christ is Lord. You'll either say them here on earth, willingly, or you'll say them on judgment day, forcibly. And so when God says that he exalts his word above his own name, that's actually a very important statement. By the way, notice according to verse 2, who is exalting his word? Notice the Bible says in verse 2, it says, for thou hast magnified thy word. This is God himself that is doing the exaltation of his own word. Understand something, this is not a Baptist preacher magnifying the Word of God above God's name. This is God magnifying the Word of God above His own name. Understand something, Baptist preachers, we didn't write the Bible, we simply preached the Bible. The belief system of a Baptist, we didn't write that, we simply read what the Bible says and that's what we believe. In In fact, if you ever want to know what a belief system is of a Baptist, it's very simple, very simple. What does a a Baptist believe? If it is in the Bible, a Baptist believes it. If it is not in the Bible, a Baptist does not believe it. That is the belief system of a Baptist. And so the elevation of God's word to a place of honor above his own name is something that God is doing, not man. Notice the Bible tells us in Psalm 138 verse 2 that it is God himself, he views his word very differently than how man views his word. He says, for thou hast magnified thy word above thy own name. That's not how mankind views the Bible. Mankind, by and large, hates this book. Mankind, by and large, exalts man's name above this word. God exalts this word, not just above every man's name, but above his own name. That's an important thing. And so God's word is very important to him. And this morning, as you open up your Bible, as you consider the thoughts and the words and the preaching and the teaching of the word of God, it is you are ignoring this book at your own peril, You are ignoring the precepts and judgments and teachings of this book at your own peril. Understand something. If you die as an unsaved person, understand it is this very book that you will be judged by. The Bible tells us in John chapter 12, Jesus says, uh, he says, he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. And then he says, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And so this book is very important. It will judge all mankind one day. And so every jot, every tittle, every word, every phrase, every letter is very important. Think about the galaxies out in outer space this morning. We have no idea how many galaxies there are in the universe. People say that there are two trillion galaxies. Not two trillion stars, two trillion galaxies. By the way, nobody knows that. Like we think that we know that, we have no idea how vast the universe actually is. And so mankind thinks that there's two trillion galaxies, that may be a speck on the map. We have no idea. But let's illustrate that for just a moment. How many galaxies is two trillion galaxies? Let's say that each galaxy is represented by the thickness of a $1 bill. Here's the Milky Way galaxy. You see it? Lay that Milky Way galaxy, $1 upon another, every single galaxy in the known universe stacked upon itself. If you stack 100 galaxies represented by these $1 bills, 100 galaxies is less than a a half inch thick. A half inch thick. 1,000 galaxies represented by these $1 bills stacked upon themselves, it's only four and a half inches thick. One million galaxies stacked, represented by these $1 bills, stacked atop of each other is 358 feet tall. One million galaxies. One billion galaxies. One billion galaxies is 68 miles tall. And you can see we very quickly get numbers that our mind can't wrap ourselves around. How many galaxies are out there? We have no idea. Trillions upon trillions. Trillions. 2 trillion galaxies, if we represented them by a stack of uh, of $1 bills, the thickness of a dollar bill, that 2 trillion single dollar bills would reach from here to halfway to the moon. That's 2 trillion single dollar bills. And when we think about 2 trillion galaxies, remember, that's not stars. We live in just one little Milky Way galaxy where there's over 100 billion stars. We, we don't even talk about uh, the, like, galaxies like the Andromeda galaxy, where there's supposedly over a, a trillion stars. You say, what's your point? Notice Psalm 147. Notice Psalm 147 in verse number 4. Notice all of these galaxies, all of these stars, all of the things that God created. Notice what the Bible says in Psalm 147, verse number 4. The Bible says in 147, verse 4, it says, He telleth the number of the stars. Watch this. He calleth them all of the trillions upon trillions of stars, he calleth them all by their, what's it say there? Names. He named all of the trillions upon trillions upon trillions of stars. The stars, he did not die for them, but they are so important to him that he named them. Now let's go back to the Bible if the stars, something like that, if the stars for which he simply said in Genesis chapter one, he said, and he made the stars also. It was a passing thought. All of the trillions of stellar galaxies out there, it was a passing thought for him to say, and he made the stars also. Yet they were so important that he named every single one of them. Let's go back to the Bible. Do you not think that every single word in his book is important to him? If he named every star, he named every galaxy, he knows the hairs on on the top of your head. He knows absolutely everything that there is to be known. Do you not think that every word of this book is important? Listen, he made trillions of stars. He only made one book. And so that one book that he wrote, we better take heed to it. Listen, by the way, when I say one book, it is the one on the binding that says KJV. Just in case you're curious as to which book he wrote. So what can we learn from the the absolute specifics in how he wrote the Word of God? The way in which he wrote certain words, I've read the Bible through many, many times. One of the things that has always caught my eye are words that are similar, but not the same. Have you ever noticed the word Nazarite sounds like Nazarene? They're similar, but they're not the same. The word Nazarite is a Jewish vow. You would take a Nazarite vow. But the word Nazarene is simply a person from the land of Nazareth. That's why Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth. He was a Nazarene. Jesus was not a Nazarite. Those words are similar, but they're not the same. What about heaven and heavens? One little s makes all the difference in the world. Remember, God named the stars and the galaxies. Surely every single one of his words is important. So heaven versus heavens. Genesis chapter one, the Bible says in verse one, God made, in the beginning, God created the heaven, singular, and the earth. But later on in that same creation week, he made two more heavens. It's actually three heavens. There's the heaven of the, the, where the birds fly. That's the air that we breathe. There's the heaven of the stars. The Bible talks about the stars of heaven. And then there's the heaven that we think about, God's abode, where uh, saved people go when they die. And so there's actually three heavens, but God speaks about them in the singular and the plural form. Why is that important? Because these words are similar, but they're not the same. There's another word I want you to see this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter number four. A word, two words that are similar, but they are not the same. And this one little S on the end, just like the word heaven and heavens, one little S makes all the difference in the world as to what these two words mean. In the Bible, the word always and the word always are similar. But they are not the same. They sound similar, they're very close in meaning, but they are not the same. The word always and the word alway, they clearly are connected. Most people, in fact, most Bible people would tell you that alway is the Old English spelling of the word always. Well, that's not true. These two words are specifically different in the Bible on purpose, and I want to look this morning at what we can learn from the word alway. I will tell you one simple reason, and it's simply logic that tells you why these two words are different. One reason that these two words are different is because both words are used in the Bible. If only one was important, God would have picked one word, not both of them. But God picked both of these words to be used in the Bible. That means always and always are used in the Bible, but they are not used interchangeably. Just like Nazarite and Nazarene are similar, but they're different. The word heaven and the word heavens are similar, but they're different. So too with the word alway and the word always. They are similar, but they are different. They are not the same. You say, what's the difference between always and always? Well, the word always, by definition, it means at every individual time. For instance, if you were to say to me, man, I get stopped at that light. That light is always red. Well, what you're saying by that, you're saying that every time I intersect that light, it is red. You're not saying, when you say that light is always red, you're not saying that light is red 24 hours a day and it never changes. You're not saying that. You're saying that that light is always red, meaning when I go through that light, every time I go through that intersection, it is red. We have a train over here. Uh, just a quarter mile from the church has anybody been stopped by the train and gotten maybe you're late late for church or anybody gotten stopped by this train over here Mikey keep your hand up dude you're always stopped by that train <laughs> so if I go by that train and I get stopped and I say man that th- I always get stopped by this train that train is always on the tracks I am not saying by that statement, I am not saying that that train resides on that tracks 24 hours a day. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that every moment of time where those two things intersect, my my drive and the train tracks, I'm saying, in effect, it always feels like I'm stuck by that train. I'm not saying it happens 24 hours a day. I'm saying it happens often. The word always, on the other hand, is actually different. The word always means continually, perpetually. The word always means never ending. The word always means 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all the time, at every time, never stopping even one time. For instance, we're not going to turn there. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. The Bible says that Jesus Christ ever liveth to make intercession for us. That means he is making intercession for us always. He never stops. It's always continual. He never takes a day off. He is 24 hours a day making intercession for us to God the Father on our behalf. He is our high priest. He makes intercession for us always. That is what always means. And the King James Bible translators got it right when they kept the word always and the word always as separate words. That little s, the end of that word, makes a big difference on what God is trying to explain in his inspired and preserved text. By the way, let me just throw this out for good measure. God doesn't need you or me thinking that we can show up in 2023 and finally correct the Bible. The Bible has been corrected since its inception. It was inspired in perfection. It was preserved in perfection. Who do you think you are that you can show up and take some class in Greek, some class in Hebrew, and then finally tell God what he got wrong? No, this book is fine. He doesn't need your help. What can we learn by the word always? Remember what always means. Always is continuously, perpetually, never ending. Always means 24 hours a day, never stopping. And when we understand what the word always means, let's look at three words, three times in the New Testament that we are commanded to do something, not always, but rather always. Notice what the Bible says in Philippians chapter number four. These three things, three things we are commanded to do, great thoughts from the scriptures that God is telling us to never stop doing. Notice what the Bible says in Philippians chapter four, verse number four. Rejoice in the Lord. What's that next word? Always. And again, I say rejoice. Did you know that you are commanded to continuously, to perpetually, to never stop rejoicing in the Lord? Did you know that your joy and gladness that God gives you should be to such a degree that you never stop enjoying and rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ? You are to rejoice in the Lord always. Now, there's not a parent here that does not understand what it is like to rejoice in your kids. There's not a person here that doesn't understand what it's like to some degree to rejoice in some tangible possession or maybe your job or some money that somebody had given you. All of us understand the thought of rejoicing in something. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever Just rejoice in the Lord. Do you ever just get alone with the Lord and say, thank you, Lord. Just rejoice in him. It wasn't a couple of months ago. I was around the corner at McDonald's on my lunch and I was really struggling. And I opened up the Bible and I needed the Lord to help me. I needed to get my rejoicement back in the Lord. And I opened up to Proverbs chapter five. Do you know what the first two words of Proverbs chapter five is? My son, and I read that, and I thought, "Thank you, Lord. That is all I needed." Now I, I finished the chapter, but you don't understand what I mean. I mean that I needed that. This book encouraged me, and my rejoicement Can, Do you ever just enjoy being with the Lord? Listen, I understand you rejoice in your family, you rejoice in your job. Listen, some of you wickedly rejoice in sin. You run to sin to do evil. My question for you: Do you rejoice? in the Lord. Do you remember where this book was written? The book of Philippians, written by the great apostle Paul. Let's go back to class. Does anybody remember where the book of Philippians was written by Paul? Jail. Listen, this wasn't the correctional facility down in downtown Cincinnati with polished concrete and three three squares a day. This was a filthy, disgusting Roman prison where he was in stocks, probably next to rats and mice and filth, who knows where. And Paul is saying, listen, you rejoice in the Lord always. You compare that to us. You think about what it took Paul to lose his rejoicement. You compare that to what it takes for us to lose our joy. Good night. Paul's in prison and he says, rejoice in the Lord. Good night. We get corrected in some area that we should get corrected and you know, it's like somebody shot our dog. You know, oh, don't talk to me that way. You know, we lose our rejoicement all the time and Paul from prison is telling us to rejoice in the Lord always. This command is not rejoice in the Lord when things are good. This command is not to rejoice in the Lord when you feel like it. This command is not to rejoice in the Lord when times are tough. This command is to rejoice in the Lord always. Listen Our rejoicing in the Lord should be continuous, perpetual, and never-ending. That is a very high command. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and let's look at the second thing that we are commanded to do always. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, just a couple of pages away. We are to rejoice in the Lord alway. But notice what the Bible says in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 as we move to our second thing that we're supposed to do always. The Bible says in 2nd Thessalonians chapter number 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God. I'm sorry, thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Notice the word always in verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. Did you know, in fact, it says who the you are there, brethren beloved of the Lord. Did you know that you are supposed to be giving thanks constantly to, for, to God for other saved people? Right. You are supposed to have in your heart and mind an idea of continual, perpetual, never ending of giving of thanks to God for other saved people. That's difficult to do. But listen, there is supposed to be a continuous, a perpetual gratitude in our heart toward other saved people in our life. I I mentioned it uh, 10 minutes ago, 25 years ago. You, You will never understand what certain people mean in my life, like Bill Hayes, who in one statement just completely altered the course of my life. You have people like that for you. I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for what he did for me when I was a teenager. I'm thankful for what he did for me when I was an adult. I am continually thankful to people like him. But listen, it's easy to be thankful for the Bill Hazes of the world. You got to be thankful for some people in this room that you have issues with. And the Bible says, not me, the Bible says... Be thankful. Give thanks to the Lord always for the brethren, beloved of the Lord. You say, "Well, I don't think they're really beloved of the Lord, so I don't have to give thanks for them." That's not the point. The point is, you're supposed to thank God for other saved people. Do you ever do that? Do you, when you have a conflict, do you ever thank God for the other saved people in which you're you're in that conflict with, or do you just constantly see them like the devil? You constantly see them like the enemy. Listen, the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. They're not my enemy. I'm supposed to give thanks to them and for them. Listen, is there a continuous, perpetual, never-ending, thankful attitude that you have in your heart toward the Lord for other saved people? Notice two things in this verse. Notice what the Bible says in verse 13. It says, we are bound to give thanks always. Did you know that thankfulness is an action word? You give thanks? Listen, thankfulness is not something that stays in your heart. Thankfulness is not something that stays in your mind. You cannot consider yourself a thankful person if your thankfulness only stays in your heart. Thankfulness, therefore, is like mercy. It is like compassion. It is like charity. It is something that is shown outwardly. It is something that is given. That's what it says. You give thanks. Listen, if your thankfulness is not shown, if your thankfulness is not expressed or shared, then your, think about this, then your thankfulness actually didn't happen because you weren't thankful. Thankfulness is an action word, is it a condition of the heart that you give? Thankfulness is given to God for brethren beloved, that's what it says. To God for the saved people in your life. Do you proactively give thanks to God for those in your house, for those in your church, for those in your workplace, those people in the circle of your life that are saved, that are born again, that know Christ as Savior? Do you give thanks for those people? The Bible says you should continuously do this. Listen, I would submit to you one of the reasons that we have this command is because you wouldn't be who you are if it weren't for those people. You wouldn't be where you are if it weren't for those people. Listen, Not only should your rejoicing in the Lord be continuous, perpetual, and nonstop, but understand, your thankful heart should be continuous, perpetual, and nonstop. You should be giving thanks to the Lord always, not just in November, not just around one meal at the end of November as we celebrate Thanksgiving. Listen, constantly. Yeah, you're so thankful to the Lord on Thanksgiving that you crush everybody at the store the next day. Right, yeah. You should be thankful to the Lord always. By the way, I would submit to you that gratefulness and thankfulness go hand in hand. I would submit to you that contentment and thankfulness go hand in hand. But envy, well, that runs opposite of thankfulness. Gossip, that runs opposite of thankfulness. Anger, bitterness, resentment, those all run opposite of thankfulness. By the way, I would submit to you this. Common courtesy. If you don't give common courtesy, somebody opens the door, you don't say thank you. Listen, that runs opposite of thankfulness. It's common courtesy. Polite. You are to be thankful to the Lord all way. Go to your Bible to Colossians chapter 4. We'll look at the third thing that we're supposed to be thankful. I'm sorry, that we're supposed to do all way. Colossians chapter number four. We talked about rejoicing in the Lord always. We talked about giving thanks to the Lord alway. There's one more thing that the New Testament tells us that we're to do always. Now, when you get to get the book of Colossians, the first two chapters has to do with who is Christ. The last two chapters has to do with who we are in Christ. And so the last two chapters of the book of Colossians is actually God trying to tell us how to be more like Jesus. The last two uh, chapters of the book of Colossians is God telling us what Jesus would do if he were in our situation, if he were in our life. And so Colossians chapter four, we get to an interesting uh, verse. Notice what the Bible says in verse six. This is tough. This is a hard one, but it's in the Bible. So we mention it. Colossians chapter four, verse six, let your speech... Be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Did you see that? Your speech needs to be always, never ending, perpetual, doesn't take a day off, always filled with grace, seasoned with salt. Let me ask you a question How's your speech this morning? If somebody talked to you and asked you about how your tone was this whole past week, how your speech was in your house this past week, how your speech was at work this past week, what would would you tell them? Was your speech like this verse, was your speech all way with grace? Was it seasoned with salt? What flowed from your lips? Was it gracious? Do you know what the Bible says in Luke chapter 4 about the words of Jesus? The Bible says in Luke chapter 4, it says, People wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of Jesus' mouth. Are your words gracious? Jesus's were. Now I know that these, these three examples of the word always, it is impossible for fallen man to reach this standard. That's why we need the Lord. That's why we need mercy. That's why we need forgiveness. That's why we need grace. But understand, this is a very high bar. Remember something about Christianity. Becoming a Christian, is the easiest thing you will ever do. Jesus paid it all. You receive Christ as your Savior. Becoming a Christian is the easiest thing you will ever do. Being a Christian is the hardest thing you will ever do. These two things are not the same. Becoming a Christian, a childlike faith, a child can get saved. But understand, somebody that has been saved 60 years still struggles with these things. Because becoming a Christian is easy. Being a Christian is very difficult. And that's what you see in these three things. So notice what the Bible says. Verse six, let your speech be always with grace. Never anything comes out of your mouth that is not gracious. That is difficult. Notice what the Bible says here in verse six. It says in verse six, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. You know what God is saying here? God is saying, He's saying, listen, make your words so that people don't mind eating them. That's what God is saying. Listen, most of the people in this room, you like delivering your words, but you give very little thought as to how people receive your words. God is saying here, God is saying, be careful with how somebody else is receiving your words. You know why your words fall on deaf ears sometimes? Because you didn't season them with salt. They weren't gracious. You weren't concerned. You were concerned with delivering your words, you were not concerned with how your words would be received. They were not gracious words. They were not seasoned with salt. Notice the second thing that God tells us in this verse, verse 6. This is, one of the, this is a great practical verse right here. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may be able, I'm sorry, that ye may know how, to, how ye ought to answer. Watch this. Every man. Notice those two words. Every man. Do you know what God is saying here? God is saying you need to know your audience. God is saying you need to know who you're talking to. You need to be discerning and navigate your words in such a way with grace, seasoned with salt, that you cannot just deliver your words the way you want to deliver them, but allow your words to be received for every individual man that you might speak to. Listen, this is an incredible principle in communication. Listen, if you're in sales, if you're in ministry, if you're married, if good night, if you're breathing. This verse will help you. You need to have gracious words seasoned with salt. And then you have to have a discernment that you know how to answer, get your message delivered to the person that you're speaking to because you have to know your audience. You have to deliver your message, not in the way you want it delivered, but you have to deliver your message in the best way that it will be received. Can I tell you something? It is not okay for you just to say something because it's in your head. It is not okay for you to say something just because it came through your heart. It is not okay. By the way, it's not okay for you to say something just because it's true. You can have true words not be gracious words. You can have true words not seasoned with salt. Listen, people get so consumed with the words that they say, you should be more concerned about the heart that those words came from. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So three, three verses, three examples of the word always versus the word always. The King James translators got it right when they left that word, that letter off, that S off of the word always. They knew what they were talking about. God knew what he, what he was talking about. We should rejoice in the Lord always. We should give thanks always. And we should speak with grace, seasoned with salt always. We should do these commands continuously. We should do them perpetually. We should do them never-ending. Can I ask you a question? What does it take to stop you from doing these things? The command is to do these things all way. Listen, what does it take for you to stop these things? In fact, the more I thought about this, the more I was convinced that our problem isn't so much what does it take to stop us, because most of us, we don't even do these three things. It's not a matter of what does it take to stop us from doing these. It is for most of us a matter of starting these things. Do you rejoice in the Lord? Have you rejoiced in the Lord all week, all month, all year? Have you taken the time to rejoice in the fact that God is your Savior? Have you given thanks to, to God for anyone recently in the last week in your life? And, and, and your words, are they gracious? Are they seasoned with salt Are you one of these people, bless God, you always know what's on my mind? What makes you think anyone wants to know what's on your mind? Turn to Matthew 28 and we'll close. Matthew 28. These three things are things that we are supposed to do. These three things are commands that God gives us. God doesn't need these commands. God does these all the time. And see, these are commands for mankind. These are commands that we are supposed to reach to. These are commands that we are supposed to stretch toward. These are our goals. My question is not so much as does God have any of these kind of commands, because God's the one that makes the commands. But if we get these three commands that we're supposed to uh, have our, gra- uh, our speech seasoned with salt and have gracious lips always, uh, I'm sorry, always, if we are supposed to give thanks always, if we're supposed to rejoice in the Lord always, is there any always that God has to do? Is there any always that God is on the hook for? There is one. And only one. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 28. Verse number 18. Jesus came and spake unto them saying all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo I am with you alway, Even unto the end of the world. Did you see what God is on the hook for? God is on the hook for never leaving us nor forsaking us. Right. Listen, God promises, "Hey, I will be with you always. In your darkest hour, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In your uh, pinnacle moments, whether it's marriage or children or graduate, you name the the, the moment, I'm going to be with you. I am going to be with you." Always, continuously, perpetually, 24 hours a day, never ending. It is interesting that this is the last phrase in the entire book of Matthew. It is almost as if Matthew had his pen in his hand and he wrote these words and he said, you know what? That's a good one to end on right there. That God promises to never leave us nor forsake us. This may be the greatest promise in all the Bible, that once you are saved, you are eternally secure, never to be lost again. He will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always. There is an assurance of salvation that you can have in Jesus Christ. He does not want you ebbing and flowing in in whether or not you are saved. We ebb and flow enough in life. Our emotions, our heart, life, politics, everything ebbs and flows. We don't need to ebb and flow whether, whether or not we're one of God's children. And thank God we don't have to. And so if you ebb and flow, if you wonder if you're saved one day and not another day, listen, there's something that you're not doing right. There's something that on your end of that relationship you need to fix. I'm happy to help you. We're happy to help you with that. But listen, from God's perspective on this relationship, you are always secure. He has never left you. He will never forsake you. You have eternal security, absolute assurance in Jesus Christ. You see, rejection is possibly the most painful of all human emotions, we talk about peer pressure. What peer pressure really is, it's fear of rejection. Nobody, and I mean nobody, wants to be rejected. In fact, even while on the cross, Jesus experienced the ultimate and complete rejection of God the Father When God turned his back on his only begotten son, and Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And for the very first time in all of eternity past, never to be repeated in all of eternity future, God the Father turned his back on God the Son, and that relationship was separated. And in that moment, it was so sharp and so painful into the Lord Jesus Christ's heart that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is as if he said, my God, the Father, my God, the Spirit, why hast thou forsaken me? We use phrases like God forsaken or a God forsaken place. Understand there are only two people that have ever ever truly been God forsaken by God. One is Jesus Christ. He was truly forsaken by God. God turned his back on the Lord Jesus Christ when he became sin for us. The other person that will truly be God forsaken is any person in this room that dies without Jesus Christ. Because the moment that you take your last breath on this earth, the moment that you close your eyes in this life, if you have not received Jesus Christ as Savior, listen, you will be ultimately and fully rejected by God. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Listen, if you die without Christ, it is only then that you will experience what Jesus experienced on the cross. For every one of us who is saved, we will never know what Christ went through. We will never know that level of rejection. We will never know what it means to have God turn his back on you. But if you're unsaved, please hear me. The moment, the very second you take your last breath here on earth, as a lost and an unsaved person, you will immediately understand what it means to be God forsaken. You will forever and ever go to a place that the Bible calls hell. There is no love, no mercy, no Bible, no forgiveness, no second chances, no blood. All there is in hell is wrath, darkness, fire, and loneliness. And Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from that place. And once you are saved, Jesus said, not me, Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, Amen. even to the end of the world. And so for everyone that is saved, you're a born-again Christian, understand something. Jesus was rejected so that you would never have to be. Jesus said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake me. Jesus said, uh, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Listen, when Jesus said, I am with you all the way, even to the end of the world, listen, that is one of the greatest Bible promises ever written. He will never leave you, nor forsake you. You see, there are some things in the Bible that we are called to do, always. We are called to rejoice in the Lord, always. We are called to give thanks to the Lord, always. We are called to allow our speech to be gracious, seasoned with salt, always. And the one thing that Jesus said He would do always is He'll never leave you, nor forsake you. So I don't know where this thought finds you this morning. Maybe you need to fix one of these areas that we spoke about. Maybe your rejoicement is off. Maybe your thanksgiving is taking a back seat to your ingratitude. Maybe, maybe your speech needs to be fixed and reset. Understand, the one thing that doesn't need to be fixed is God's promise on this. He will be with us always. And if you are not saved, you can have that Bible promise today that He will never leave you nor forsake you. Right now, if you're not saved, you don't have that Bible promise. That is not your promise to cling to. That is my promise and everyone else in here that is saved. So if you're not saved, I beg you, I plead with you, make today the day of salvation. Let's stand for a moment of invitation.